0: Blog
1: TALK RADIO This is Backroom Politics. And good afternoon out there on Radio Land. It is Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio, live from the National Capital Region, and points beyond. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, uh, she is the former counselor for the Hillary Clinton 2016 campaign in the great state of Ohio. She's now a bar-certified attorney in the great empire state of New York and the Garden City of New Jersey. She's the one we know as Sharma Chari. Hey, Sharma. Hi, Justin. And joining us from the metropolitan uh chicagoland actually wait a minute uh just joining me as they do every tuesday is our uh, associate producer at an undisclosed location somewhere in the vicinity of cape cod She is audrey Howard. audrey how are you
2: i'm doing well justin how are you
1: and who else is joining us we have somebody else on the line with us that would be laura that would be, Laura's joining us already. Awesome. She is Hi. the former, Hi. she is the former executive producer from NBC and ABC. She is also a former journalist with said networks from Chicagoland area. She is Laura Chavez. Hello, Laura. I didn't recognize the number. Oh, wow. Usually I get that. I, I did not recognize the number. Uh, oh. Anyway, we we have a lot to talk about uh, in case you have not noticed. Uh, there's been a lot of things going on. Number one, uh, in case you haven't noticed, the president yesterday, in true dramatic form, with everything except a large box with big red bows all over it, he basically nominated his uh, Supreme Court nominee to replace the retiring Justice Kennedy. Uh, He apparently has nominated uh, the D.C. Circuit Judge Brett Kavanaugh to be the next Supreme Court Justice here in Washington. So the, the big question now is what exactly uh, first of all, who exactly is Brett Kavanaugh? Let me go to you, Sharmila. You, you are familiar with this year. You're familiar with uh, a lot of the judges at the federal level. Well, what is your take on Brett Kavanaugh?
3: Well, he was a pretty safe and, you know, strongly conservative pick. I think President Trump will infuriate the GOP establishment on many issues and then turn around and nominate someone like Brett Kavanaugh that placates them and, you know, gives them some sense that, okay, this guy isn't so bad. So, you know, Kavanaugh is, you know, very well respected. He went to Yale Law School. He Clerked for uh, District Circuit Court. He clerked on the Ninth Circuit for Alex Kaczynski, who's actually a very famously liberal judge, and then went on to clerk for Justice Anthony Kennedy, who he's now replacing. It's very similar to the story of how Chief Justice John Roberts clerked for then Chief Justice William Rehnquist and eventually replaced him on the court as well. Um, So, you know, and he's been a DC Circuit Court judge for about 10 years, so has a reputation of being, you know, solidly conservative approved by the GOP establishment, has a long um, judicial track record. He's not some sort of off-the-cuff nominee a la Harriet Myers, who was seen as not qualified or, you know, not an appropriate nominee. So he's a very solid pick. You could see any other Republican president picking someone like Brett Kavanaugh. Um, And, you know, very Federalist Society approved, all, all that, all those trappings, which I think is a big reason why... The president picked him So all in all, a, a solid Conservative pick uh,
1: Laura Does Everybody, I've heard, I've heard true Republicans Actually Not be real thrilled With the president's nomination of Brett Kavanaugh, saying that there are much More conservative Justices out there that he could have picked From is, is, Going off of what Sean was saying Is this the smart play for Donald Trump at this time, particularly the fact that he's replacing a centrist like Justice Kennedy.
2: Uh, I think, yeah, it is. At this point in time, he knows he's not going to get someone like Clarence Thomas on the court right now. And well, I guess he very well could uh, just playing the numbers game, but it would be really hard to get uh, Murkowski and a Collins to support someone like a Clarence Thomas. Uh, I think Kavanaugh's, I mean, all things considered, one of the more moderate choices he could have made. He's right in that Alito Gorsuch zone. That is really where he wants someone to be. That's going to give the most legs for any approval that he could ask for. We know that you know he's not. He's essentially the equivalent of a Merrick Garland. Just, he's probably going to get pushed through. He's not so far to the side, but he's not so far to the center. He's just kind of in that conservative sweet spot. I know a lot of social conservatives are saying, but why won't he take this stance? You know, he's ruled on this in the past. What about this and that and the other? And he's not taking, he's not giving his opinion on a case that isn't before him at that moment. I know a lot of people are talking about abortion and women's rights um, and a laundry list of other things. But I think this is kind of the safe play from a president who doesn't always play it safe, which is actually a really interesting choice when you think about it.
3: And, uh, and to uh, add on, on to what Laura said, I, okay. think that, I think that it shows that Trump maybe thinks that he can't take the votes of the red state Democrats, the, the Mansions, the McCaskill's. Uh, For granted, because he has nominated someone who is on the record saying that he is not going to repeal Roe v. Wade, that he respects Supreme Court precedent and he respects the law of the land. And his intention, I mean, again, this is just what he said in his 2006 confirmation hearing, but that his intentions are not to turn the clock back on established Supreme Court precedents. And I think that that's something that some Democrats can take some comfort in.
1: Right. And joining us right now on the phone from Washington, D.C., he is the former economic security advisor to President Obama's White House. He is now a partner over at Wilkie Farr, a really a really fancy and very distinguished law firm here in Washington, D.C. He's the man that we know as David Mortlock. David, thanks for joining us.
4: Hey, Justin. Good to, good to be on. Thanks very much for having me. Hey, hey David
1: first of all we've got to get your take on uh the nomination of justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh to replace justice Kennedy on the Supreme Court. Uh you've been around the DC court circuit for a long time. Is 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 he placating to the centrist crowd as, as far as putting Brett Kavanaugh up for nomination?
4: Well, I think uh placating only to the extent that um you know, he—he Kavanaugh is a, a decent guy, with you know, unlikely to have any skeletons in his closet that are uh, that are likely to make any sort of spectacle out of the hearings. But I don't think we should fool ourselves. It's you know if uh if there's any question about how he will actually vote when the cases get before him, uh then the Federalist society really hasn't done their job uh and i, I certainly don't believe that's the case, and I think we all we all know how he's going to vote uh, on these critical cases as they get to him um and you know we we shouldn't have expected anything else
1: before we get back to Burkenra, you brought up one point that we've we've heard over the past few weeks
4: uh
1: david that the Federal Society has had a very strong influence in helping either select the candidates that went before the president for his final decision, up to and including the Federal Society leadership picking Kavanaugh as the right pick, and the president just going along with that. From your knowledge, how strong of a sway did the Federal Society have? on the selection of Kavanaugh for the open bench seat.
4: Well, I mean, but, you know, I've I've obviously read the same reports that you guys have. Uh, I mean, my you know my take is that they had a huge amount of influence, um, and you know, look, I mean, this is the culmination of a 30-year project uh, by um, the, the the Federalist Society and, and conservative legal thinkers uh, to really you know populate the bench with with reliable um, ideologically. Um, uh, pure, let's say, uh, uh, conservative jurists. Uh, and the Republicans have done uh, a much better job than Democrats um, at uh, really focusing on the issue of the courts. David,
1: let me just jump in real quick, because is, is the influence of the Federalist Society something that uh, the American electorate should be concerned about? I mean, have we seen this kind of influence from an external organization on something as sensitive as a Supreme Court judicial nomination, is this something we should really, really be concerned about?
4: Well, I I don't think this is a I don't think this is an issue of a you know an outside interest group or a special interest group or, you know, corporate PAC money. We can talk about that separately. I mean I think I think you know, the American voter knows what they're getting when they vote for a Republican Senate to confirm Republican judges. They know what they're getting when they vote for uh, uh, for a Republican president. Um, you know, the Republicans have made no secret that, uh, you know, the, uh, about the sort of philosophy of the courts. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't think it's a matter of you know, outsourcing to the Federalist Society. I think it's a matter that, uh, of the fact that the entire party has a very organized and um, aggressive approach on, on on judges.
1: And joining us, obviously, the directional signal you hear in the background is our own former Biden political operatives and Democratic political strategists in bar-certified attorney in the great state of Maryland and the District of Columbia, he is Dan Littner, Esquire, somewhere, I guess, on the New Jersey Turnpike. Dan, welcome back.
0: Uh, not know? on the New Jersey Turnpike, still on Cape Cod at the moment, but just later
1: well, the Yeah, well, Cape Cod's pretty much traffic. It is summer. Hey, uh, Dan, let me get your take on this. Uh, give me your thoughts on, first of all, Brett Kavanaugh, uh, what you know about him, what you think about the nomination, and was this a home run for the White House, or did he miss it with his base?
0: Um, thus far, uh, I, I'm still not completely familiar with him, but all the initial reports suggest he is eminently qualified. And for for some of the pushback that uh, uh, Democrats in the Senate had already tried to lay the groundwork for uh, possible recusals uh, for any nominee, if anything should reach the Supreme Court uh, regarding uh, any legalities or illegalities for the president. Uh, This choice seems to be, assuming he's intellectually honest, a uh, tough call for the president to be looking for somebody to have his back uh, on executive privilege and lawsuits. So in that case, yeah, uh, if you want to say a home run, that he'll probably be confirmed that it's a tougher fight for Democrats. Um, You could say that. However, the... The uh, fidelity to the law could be challenging to this president uh, in the long run, if any if any cases particular to him hit the court.
1: You, you know, certainly, One of the things that has been brought up in discussions about Brett Kavanaugh over the past 24 to 48 hours has been that uh, he has written, at least on one published occasion the idea that the the executive the office of the president should not be burdened with issues of civil lawsuits or criminal investigations is this a telltale sign that hey trump is really scared of the mueller investigation
3: well i think it's interesting that he wrote that considering that he was a prominent member of the kenneth star investigation but i think that I mean, there's long, uh, there's long established precedent that the executive can be shielded from civil lawsuits and things of that nature that will distract him from the very important business of running, of running the country. However, I do believe that most judges do make a kind of large exception for the fact that, you know, if the if the lawsuit, so if this is something like, you know, Summer suing the president for allegedly groping her. That's something that I believe, you know, Brett Kavanaugh would most likely say, yes, the president can be shielded from that while in office. However, if it's a criminal probe into the president's potentially abusing his power or obstructing justice, I don't think that any judge citing that example could still say, no, the president is shielded from that. So I, don't, I think that that's a bit of a red herring that the Democrats are throwing out there, but I don't think it's wrong to be on, I, I, don't, I think it's right to be concerned, but do not I don't know that it rises to the level of We need to be freaking out about this yet.
1: David, do you you agree? Because, you know, some inside the beltway are saying that, you know, this is a friendly ear. Many are expecting that should Trump be served a subpoena or be forced to testify uh, in a criminal action, that this decision is going to go to the Supreme Court. And if it does, he's got a friendly ear. Do you agree with that? Was this a preemptive
4: strike by the White House? so uh, that's a great question i mean uh, you know who who knows what types of conversations been having in the white house with with respect to this issue? I think that's a lot harder to say than you know how how do they expect him to rule on on abortion or or um obamacare or um or unions um it, it, it It is entirely possible there was some there were some pretty subtle uh conversations, but I'm guessing no, nobody wants any record of of that kind of uh, uh, that kind of issue being part of this decision
1: Is, is it something that you, you know the expectation because everybody thought that when uh Justice Kennedy was originally uh, uh appointed to the bench uh, for his term that he was going to be so drastically conservative and surprise everybody over the past 25, 30 years. Is it possible that Kavanaugh also could surprise us in a way that maybe Kennedy did? Do we have another Kennedy possibly?
3: Well, remember, David Souter was nominated by George H.W. Bush and turned out to be one of the most liberal justices on the bench. Even Earl Warren was nominated by Dwight Eisenhower to be a conservative justice and ended up ushering in the era of civil rights. So I think there's – look at John Roberts, who has actually moved much more center of where he appeared to be when he was first nominated by George W. Bush. So I think there's a significant precedent, even in recent memory, that um, that Judge Kavanaugh, if he's, not, if he's uh, confirmed, could – become a more centrist centrist influence, especially if, if he's someone who truly respects the Supreme Court as an institution and respects the precedent that it has set in the past.
1: Dan Lipner, and, yeah. Yeah, it, even, even Gorsuch, the, Trump's first nominee and appointee to the bench, uh, didn't necessarily always agree with him in the decisions he's been a part of.
0: So, well, that's correct. There's actually... Uh, I believe it's either one of the deportation cases or uh, immigration cases where uh, Gorsuch w- went the other way against the administration, which would actually be the swing vote. But uh, there are a couple points here. So, one, I think if the court moves too far right, or uh, I think Roberts is going to end up being in the middle of the court in part because Roberts believes in the institution as genuinely shown some um, both – the. Fidelity to precedent and a real desire to keep the court out of politics whenever possible. Sometimes it it involves writing some very tortured decisions in order to do that, seemingly to be political on their face, but I suspect the actual merits to or logic behind the decisions were to try and keep the court out of politics. However, I want to back up to a previous point that was made uh, that it was suggested that the American people know what they're getting when they vote for a Republican Senate and that that that's what they're going to get when uh, you have these senators. That's far from true. Most Americans have no idea what the the full extent of the cases that are before the court and the real issues that have gone before the court. And even to to the populist wing of the, the folks supporting Trump, those folks would argue that they don't have access to justice, in part because of decisions that have been very pro-corporate, the kind of things that while the federal society is very much in favor of and happy with those decisions, those are not the ones that they use to sell, sell judges to the American people. So the idea that people know what they're getting is far from true. And unfortunately, the way the confirmation process worked, it doesn't exactly do a good job of civic education introducing those issues to the American public and how these legal issues actually can affect their day-to-day lives.
4: Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I completely agree. Hold
1: on, hold on. uh, (laughs) David Mortlock and Sharma
4: yeah, just, just, I mean, that was, you know, obviously a reference to the point I made earlier. I, I, I completely agree with that, right? Um, you know, I. I uh, I, I should say it, it shouldn't be a mystery to anybody who's paying close attention. Uh, but that doesn't mean that um, you know it, it's easy for for uh, for most voters to actually keep tabs on the de- you know, every decision coming out of the Supreme Court, and certainly not out of all the other federal courts. Um, it's just, uh, but so so I, I completely agree, and I think it is true that you know the Republicans have really done a much better sales job uh, on on the courts as as part of this 30-year project.
3: And
1: Sharmila,
3: well, I was gonna I was gonna completely agree with Dan, and I think you saw that in the reaction to, or the sort of enthusiasm for uh, Amy Barrett when she was a, a possible nominee, right? The fact that so many grassroots conservatives, conservative voters, saw her as a real anti-abortion advocate that that was the prism through which they saw the court, which is this kind of, and I think you know, to David and Dan's point, the Republicans have done a good job of tying the Supreme Court to a lot of these social justice issues, such as, you know, same-sex marriage and abortion, whereas a lot of their actual rulings deal, on, deal with the economic issues that kind of, you know, subvert access to justice for the lower, um, for, the, for the working class and those who, Dan said, you know, have, feel that they right. have less access to justice and less access to the court system.
1: Laura Chathers, let me ask you, because, again, you know, we we talked about uh, even Amy Coney Barrett uh, being a front-runner, at least even in the top four, if not top two, but uh, also under consideration by many sources reporting Joan Larson, uh, who is a uh, uh, justice on the Michigan Supreme Court. Did the president miss an opportunity here to bring – some sort of uh, messaging back saying, look, I care about women, women issues, the family, by not appointing somebody like a Judge Larson or a Judge Barrett?
3: Well, I think that's interesting. I was actually going to bring that well, up that, at one point because uh, I think oh, that you...
1: Actually, actually, I was asking Laura, and I'll come back to you. Oh, sorry. Laura. Yeah, it's all right. No, no, no. Yeah. Um, and I, agree, I agree very much
2: with Sharmila that it is an interesting point, and I would actually argue that it wasn't the purpose of this um, nomination. He isn't necessarily trying to appeal to women. He isn't necessarily trying to appeal to any of those uh, family values people. Right now he's just trying to get the greater win. That's kind of how he looks a lot. He looks at his presidency, a lot of winner losses, even if you look at the way he speaks at many of his campaign rallies. I mean, the fact that he's even doing campaign rallies, it looks like they're for him, not necessarily for the candidate that he's there talking about. He wants the win. He knows that um, – Kavanaugh's probably going to be a win. Even, I think, last night or the night before, he kind of mocked the Me Too movement, which is a, a central women's movement, to be perfectly honest, that has really kind of taken a lot of um, ground in the national spotlight. So I don't think that that was the point of this nomination. He wasn't trying to get any sort of um, leverage with those people who would be looking at that stuff. He was looking at how can I keep my base strong, And, while Kavanaugh is kind of a risky pick for keeping his base strong because he isn't, you know, as far right as they would like. But he is pretty far right. He's a safe bet. He's smart. He's he's very Yale educated. He's. I think someone called him, you know, just right out of central casting is what I've heard on several different organizations, (laughs) saying that he is the person that his base, his uh, party expects. So I don't think that the point of this nomination was to re, was to have any sort of
1: outreach. Okay, okay. Uh Sharma let me ask you though. If we look at like even Amy Coney Barrett versus uh um uh, versus uh Judge Kavanaugh, Barrett, Judge Barrett actually looks like the more conservative when it comes to the baseline uh key factors, i.e. Roe v. Wade, same-sex marriage, Uh, she seems to be the right choice, and I would have thought that if the president was going to make a push to reverse Roe v. Wade or at least have some uh, ammo in the fight, appointing a staunchly Catholic justice female mother of seven would have given him a lot of street cred in that fight was this a mark on that aspect?
3: No, because, again, I think that – I think Laura's absolutely right. The president doesn't really care about a lot of these issues. He cares about the optics and getting a win. And, you know, most – even exactly. almost every conservative – on TV, and a lot of liberals will, you know, when Neil Gorsuch was nominated, said, you know what? This was a good move by the president. This was a true political win for him. He saw that, and he wanted to replicate it, and that's exactly what he did by nominating, kind of demographically, the same type of man, you know, middle-aged, white, clean-cut, lovely family, very Midwestern, aw shucks sensibility. He saw that formula worked once, and he he knew it would work a second time, and he, he made the right call and that. In that perspective, I think that what I was going to bring up before is that one of the things that I think is going to engage and and that frustrates liberal activists now and I think is going to engage in the future is the fact that you see the president trying to take the court back to where it used to be right up until I think 1968, whenever until 1 3rd Marshall was nominated, the court was entirely white men. Until 1981, it was entirely men. You saw only in the last 30 years did the demographics of the Supreme Court change to include women, to include minorities, to really make the court look more like what America looks like. And you see with this pick that President Trump is just reversing that track. He's taking the court back to what it used to look like in the 50s and 60s because that's the image of America he wants to build. And I think that's something that we need to keep in mind when we think about the fact that suddenly the rights of women and the rights of minorities of black and brown people, whether they're U S citizens or immigrants are going to be decided again, by this panel of majority white men, that's something that liberal (laughs) activists I think are really going to take to the bank and look to fight against. And if I'm actually
1: actually
2: one uh, tag along with that, um, one of the things that I thought was really dynamic in the whole rollout of you know, Kavanaugh's nomination was the fact that Trump, you know, did it in prime time, made a big spectacle of it. Then when Kavanaugh gave his speech or his acceptance of it, it almost sounded like a love letter to women. He talked about his daughters and coaching their basketball team, and he talked about mothers and the percentage of women working for him. So to Sharmila's point, he is kind of throwing it back to this era where it might be, you know, Nine justices or however many justices that do kind of reflect what Trump would want and what we suspect Trump might want in a Supreme Court. But it almost seemed like Kavanaugh, was, or, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, or Kavanaugh sorry, was making a concerted effort to deflect that idea of like, hey, 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 I might be a guy, but, you know, I love women. I hire women. I've got daughters. So it was almost like a labored point that he made in his acceptance speech.
3: And, uh, and I'm mean, sure there's I'll, not a list of senator, senators that that was aimed right at. Well, actually,
1: I, I, actually that, that's, let, me, let me just jump in. Dan Lipner, I mean, two of the noticeably non-present senators, uh, Susan Collins of Maine and uh, uh, Senator um, Murkowski, Murkowski of Alaska, both of them invited but declining the invite. Is that something that should... Either scare uh, the leadership in the Senate and the White House, or are they the key factor in getting Brett Kavanaugh his seat on the bench?
0: I mean, I think it was clearly a warning shot across the bow that this is not necessarily going to be the easiest process in the world, and they still better uh, take things seriously because. Uh, this White House has not exactly done a good job of courting their friends, let alone their enemies. So, yeah, it, it, it's something to be they they should be attentive to. And there is a lot of Republicans on the ballot, and people while Democrats retake in the Senate, it's almost impossible uh, not impossible, but almost impossible. Uh, still having a working coalition to uh, govern with a possible democratic house this matters to a lot of people and consistently it's been reported uh the women on the hill of both the house and the senate but particularly the senate have done a much better job working across party lines than any of the men have so uh yeah there there, there might be something more there uh that, uh that that somebody wanted to make a very public point on
1: and let me go to David Mortlock for the last point before I go around the horn. David, there are critics, particularly on the far right, that are saying that uh, Brett Kavanaugh is the establishment pick. Would you agree with that? Does Does Brett Kavanaugh fit that establishment mold that would kind of torque off some of the venomous right base of Trump supporters?
4: Well, I mean, I think he's an establishment pick in that he is is certainly of the Republican establishment. I think it was Dick Durbin who called him the Forrest Gump of uh, of Republican politics. Uh, And – you know so he he's been around he's as uh, as has been discussed um and, and so you know I, I i not to read too much into it but um I, I you know i think maybe this this was a pick to satisfy those suburban republicans who were uncomfortable with trump as a as a person as a as a leader um his treatment of, of immigrant children the the muslim ban you know the the various comments he's made about women but nonetheless you know what we get a supreme court out of it Uh, and you know, that, that is, that is, uh, um, that is a sort of bargain that, that, uh, Trump has, and certainly members of Congress, Republican members of Congress, have have presented to the voters. Um, And and certainly that's going to be important as we head into the midterms, as, yeah, the president is, uh, you you may really, really dislike him, but, you know, at least we're delivering on on the basics. Um, Now, at the end of the day, I don't think he's, uh, you know, I think the, the far right should be very happy. Um, I, I don't think he's actually going to vote in any different way, um, certainly on those critical cases, than uh, than any of the other picks on the short list.
1: Yeah, very good. Around the horn real quick, does Brett Kavanaugh sit a day on the bench as the next Supreme Court justice? Sharon, well, I'll start with you.
3: Yes, I think so.
1: Laura Chavez. Uh, yes,
3: yes, he does.
1: Are you on a
2: fire alarm? No, i uh, not a fire alarm. I'm on set today, and it's, it's just a normal emergency drill. It's not a
1: big deal. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> David Mortlock, does Judge Kavanaugh see the bench? Absolutely. Dan
4: Littner.
0: He sees the bench, but he has to go through an awful long walk explaining his time working for Star and how that might affect the the current president.
1: Ah, interesting thought. Interesting thought. All right. Obviously we're going to be talking about this as we go forward in the uh in the confirmation process for uh Brett Kavanaugh. We'll continue to talk about him as the next Supreme Court Justice here in the future. But we're going to go to break. When we come back, we're going to talk to David Morlock about tariffs, trade wars and uh, are we really in a full flown punching match with China? This is Background Politics Live on Block Talk Radio from the National Capital Region and Points Beyond. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. <laughs> for the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, Sean Lachari, Laura Chavez, Dan Lipner, and special guest today for our first hour, the former White House Economic Security Advisor, David Morlock. Uh, also joining us, as she does every Tuesday, is our associate producer, Audrey Howerton, at an undisclosed location somewhere near Cape Cod. Uh, let's talk about trade trade tariffs and the trade war coming up. in case you have not seen what has been going on here in Trumpland, there is a full on trade war escalating with uh, escalating with China last week uh, both sides slapped on about a thirty four billion dollar tariff on each side and putting Products that we use on a daily basis, everything from batteries to thermostats to household goods like refrigerators and even certain components for TVs, they're not going to be much more expensive. Now, at the same time, farmers here are going to get hit by trying to get their products into a Chinese market that is going to have sustainably or, or severely larger, larger tariffs put on them, Places uh, products like soybeans wheat, corn, et cetera, all big tariffs. David Mortlock, this is something you are obviously very familiar with. Uh, first of all, let's talk about the logic behind this. This is something that has been going on. This is rhetoric that we've seen come out of the White House for just about the time that the president took office. But we're now at a point where we are starting to play serious, hardcore baseball With the global economy and our own economy Tell me What is the logic that you see In Placing tariffs On China or is there a logic (laughs)
4: Well, I think there is a reason that that the president has done so. I wouldn't necessarily call it logic uh, or logical. But uh, I mean, essentially, you know, his argument is that um, China is taking advantage of the United States because they sell more things to the United States than the United States sells to China. Um, and you know he 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 also sees there are several areas which is true where where China has restrictive tariffs on U.S. goods and and he wants to be able to allow uh, U.S. Uh, companies to to expand their market share in China. Um, you know the go, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. David, go ahead. No, 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 oh, I was going to say. I mean, look, some some of these are some of these are, are legitimate goals, right? You know, getting getting more U.S. cars into China, um, opening up the market, um, allowing more U.S. direct investment uh, in China. You know, the, these are absolutely legitimate goals. Um, it, 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 but it's like uh, it's like taking a sledgehammer to a fly. Um, you know, the the, the uh, you may kill the fly, but the furniture is uh, is going to end up smashed into pieces at the same time.
1: And, and which, by the way, the furniture was probably made in China, so you're going to have to import it to replace it, so it's going to
4: be even worse. Or well, all, all all Sweden, all Sweden, depending where you're getting it. That, 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 too, is true, enough to take away from friends at IKEA. Hey, David,
1: you, know, we, you know, we've heard the arguments, and what it seems like is that they dumbed down the argument for people who really do not understand the... Uh, the nuances or the delicate intricacies of foreign trade policy negotiation and how and when to use these tariffs. Are are we literally following a dog whistle and everybody buying into the, we're going to make America great again, but in fact it's actually a toss-up on whether this could be an economic disaster for the country?
4: Well, look. I mean, Trump is a, a master at um, addressing uh, complex problems. Why well, we shouldn't say addressing, but suggesting we can solve complex problems with with uh, with very simple solutions. Um, and you know, in fact, it gets worse than that. It's uh, it's misidentifying the problem to begin with, uh, right? It, 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 the question of the the trade deficit is you know a fundamental misunderstanding and. Uh, um, a mischaracterization of of the problem right uh it, you know it, it is allowing people to essentially find a boogeyman for our economic problems um you know, it, it, the fact that we buy more stuff from China than China buys from us does not mean our economy is at a disadvantage. Uh, in fact, um, the opposite is true. The United States has uh, a much more high-tech, service-based, uh, sophisticated economy, which means higher wages, better jobs, uh, p- the potential if, if uh, you know, our government operates as it should uh for uh, uh for, for a rising tide to raise all boats and and for all those to to receive greater education and to benefit from that growing economy um and uh you know starting a trade war doesn't do all that it 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 um uh you know it essentially uh exacts some harm on china but uh, exacts harm on on us as well uh and but, uh you know I, I think it you know if you don't understand the problem and if you mischaracterize the problem you you're never going to find the right solution but
1: but Is it a dangerous game of economic chicken that we're playing when we start putting, I mean, when we start literally going tariff to tariff to tariff to tariff in this trade war with arguably the largest holder of American debt, China? I mean, all they have to do is call the mark and everything just falls down. Is that not part of the
4: cognizant
1: uh, reasoning in, in, in dealing with this foreign trade issue?
4: Well, exactly. Right. I mean, I think uh, I mean, look, you know, perhaps there are reasonable arguments that we can hurt China more than China can hurt us. But what state are we in by the time we get there? (laughs) Right. I mean, if, if we can drag China down further than China can drag us down, we're still dragging each other down. And the reality is that China can hurt and is already hurting our economy. As a result of these tariffs and china 's retaliation to them, you know which we all, all could have anticipated um and and you know China is very good at this. they know exactly where to target those tariffs they they understand u s politics they understand u s geography and they 're looking at things like soybeans and and bourbon and cotton and tobacco and and you know these really go to the heart of uh trump 's political support so so they know what they're doing, uh, but the irony is that that by imposing these tariffs. Uh, Trump is, uh, the p- folks Trump is hurting most uh, uh, are his own voters. Um, and, you know, the, rea- the reality is, I think the question is, you know, what, what is, you know, Trump may argue that, that China's trade deficit has hurt American workers, but what is he actually doing to help those workers um, other than trying to drag China down as well?
1: I mean, you know, we, we, it, it almost seems, that, and, and again, you know, in your role as economic security advisor in the White House, understand this it seems that we are literally doing a scar-faced shootout scene with guns pointed at both directions one at china one at europe Uh, you know are are we in fact steering down the barrel of a possible trade war with our closest allies in europe
4: well i think we're in a trade war um you know we're certainly um europe is um you know we we've got the um we've got the the 232 the steel and aluminum tariffs in place on Europe now um and you know I, I, I and and they are retaliating um you know we saw for the 301 tariffs we thought saw you know the the, the retaliation from China on on friday on 34 billion of of us goods um i think we we're, we're already in a trade war um and that's you know that's really unfortunate um and unnecessary uh because you know at the end of the day you know may, maybe maybe the president thinks that these these trade war you know the 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 tariffs and a trade war creates leverage for a better deal um but we've been hearing this a lot right we we've been hearing this on on iran we've been hearing this on the paris climate agreement we've been hearing it on tpp um i you know where are these better deals uh and you know if if even if they ever arrive um, they're going to be years away. That's a lot of economic pain. That's a lot of lost American jobs. Um, uh, not to mention the fact it's always, always worth keeping in mind. Um, you know who who's paying the tariffs? Uh, it's not as though European governments are sending a check to the U.S. government. It is right. that uh, it, it is that U.S. consumers are paying more for goods that are imported from Europe and China and elsewhere.
1: David, one more one more question to you before uh, we go back to the roundtable. I want to get your take on this. It it seems to me that there's a flawed logic in putting a tariff on European vehicles, when and, and even on Asian production, Japanese, Korean vehicles. When in fact, you know, you look at BMW. BMW's largest factory is in South Carolina. Honda, Toyota, Mercedes are all building some of their fastest-selling products in the southeastern United States, and those are people that put Trump in the White House. What is to stop somebody like Angela Merkel or uh, President Moon in South Korea to come back and say, okay, you know what, Kia, pull it. Uh, Angela Merkel going to BMW and Volkswagen down in Chattanooga, Tennessee, you know what? Shut it down. We'll build it here and we'll figure it out. Is that something that uh, could be a weapon by the EU or by the European leaders?
4: Well, I I think, frankly, it's much more um, – I, I don't think it needs to even be a, be a decision by those leaders. Um, you know, the fact is that it's going to be more expensive for these companies to import steel, into the United States, um, steel inside the United States, the prices will go up. Um, it's going to be more expensive uh, for those factories to operate. Uh, and it is true that you know foreign uh, foreign car companies, uh, other companies have have invested huge amounts of money to uh, build these factories to create jobs all across the United States. Uh, and by you know essentially these these tariffs are making it harder uh to to operate um you know we we keep saying that you know we we don't want uh, American companies to relocate their factories to mexico or, or elsewhere um but the same is true for foreign companies um you know we, we've had a hospitable environment, an attractive environment for foreign investment in the United States in the past uh but if we're if we're making it more expensive for them to operate here if we're making it more expensive for them to build cars here uh and other products uh then uh, you know we're we're um uh we're biting the hand that feeds us
1: lord chavez you know being in Chicago, you're seeing the, you know, the lunch pail crowd, the the industrial crowd there. These are hardworking people. Again, many of them, you know, supported Trump. Is there kind? Is it just that they're tone deaf? Don't want to know the reality of this, or are do they have some sort of blind faith that this administration is going to? Uh, come out on top when it comes to international trade and uh, not putting American jobs at risk. Laura, did we lose Laura? Hi, yeah, sorry,
2: I'm here. Uh, It's kind of a slightly strange situation. Yeah, so it's funny that you ask. Today I'm actually at a plant in central Illinois and it's genuinely is a sense that we will be taken care of this will all be taken care of there's no way he's going to let us you know falter in any way shape or form yeah you just kind of have to get through the hard times to get to the greener pastures on the other side so um from and i apologize if i'm shouting um so from what i can from what i've been able to talk with people today, and I've also been in Kentucky where there are a lot of steel plants, everyone's mentality at this point in time is really kind of hopeful of, like, it's going to be a quick, painful hit, but the medicine in the long run is going to really help make everything profitable. And the fact that the economy is kind of doing really well right now is also something that people are pointing to. They're saying, like, yeah, um, tariffs might go up, prices might go up, but odds are I'm going to be making more money. They're almost Harkening back to like a trickle-down economic type idea where if the CEO is getting paid more, I'll probably get paid more in the long run. There's a lot of faith that they're going to be taken care of, even though there hasn't necessarily been any proof.
1: Laura, are you getting the sense that, in fact, it's almost a, you know a blind faith that, you know, I don't need to know all the delicate nuances? Donald Trump knows what he's doing, and I'm going to be successful as a result of it?
2: Yeah, it kind of is. Um, it's similar to uh, what we were talking about earlier, how not necessarily, how people aren't necessarily thinking like, oh, I need to consider how my vote will impact the Supreme Court, how my vote will impact, you know, my granddaughters, my futures, you know, ability to have reproductive rights, all of that kind of thing. There's just a genuine faith that, you know, he's going to make America great again. I'm part of America. He's going to make my life great again.
1: Sharmila, is, is, is that type of blind faith at the at, at at the at the at the front line worker level anything that gives pause to the leadership up there on Wall Street? Sharmila, I think we lost Sharmila. No,
3: About no, I'm here. I can hear
1: you now. There you go. Sorry,
3: I realized my phone was on mute. Um, <laughs> I don't think that it's something that necessarily concerns the leadership of Wall Street terribly, right? They're happy with this administration and the president enacting kind of, you know, solidly conservative uh, economic policies other than these tariffs, which everyone hates. But, But, right, I mean, you saw for the first... 18 months of his administration, the stock market was going gangbusters. Uh, But I think it is something that the Democratic leadership should be incredibly concerned about. I saw this when I was out in Ohio with the campaign. I was in Lorraine, which was a former, you know, thriving industrial town with two major plants. There was a U.S. steel plant and a a Ford plant. And now those plants have either cut production entirely or are down to, you know, 20 percent of their former capacity. And you saw, you know, abandoned storefronts, people, you know, massive um, migration out of these towns that had used to host generations of families. And I think that, you know, even though these were typically kind of blue dog Democrat strongholds, you saw that, as Loris described, you saw that attitude shift towards Trump because they thought, look, we voted for Obama, we voted for Democrats for all this time, and yet they haven't really done anything for us. Yes, they talk a good game, but they actually have been just as concerned with sort of elitism and, you know, enriching themselves as the Republicans have. And so we're going to turn to Donald Trump, who, you know, in their mind had enough money, so they didn't, he didn't need to enrich himself at the expense of the little guy. And they thought, okay, we're going to put our eggs in this basket because what we have voted for before hasn't been working for us. And so at least this guy is different and he can bring something new to the table. And I think, you know, now that I think that and I think that the Democrats and the media actually feed into that narrative, because the more they rail against things like these tariffs, the more they rail against his unorthodox methods in diplomacy and in economic policy and in, you know, the way he speaks and the way he conducts himself. I think it reinforces that idea that his voters had that is like, okay, well, yeah, this guy is shaking up the system, so maybe he is doing something right. And so I think uh, that's something that Democrats need to be really wary of and cognizant of going into these midterms. Because if they, if they continue with their same message from 2016, they're not going to go anywhere.
1: I mean, David, we're at basically uh, full employment in the workforce of the United States. We're at 3.8 to 4 Percent uh, unemployment. Uh, we've got a strong economy. We've got a stock market that has been up and down, but has seen tremendous gains. Uh, and it doesn't seem that anybody in Wall Street is worried or anybody in the economic sector inside the administration is worried. My concern is, are we in fact smoking economic crack right now? Are we on a high that it's just going to be a tremendous wall that we hit. <laughs> um, I like that
4: phrase. Well, yeah, I, I mean, look, I don't think that's the case. I don't think we're on a bubble like like we were, um, you know, after the tax cuts and in, in heading into, into 2007, 2008. Uh, but you know I, I mean look call me biased but uh you know we we're, we're on a, an upward trajectory that that began about 2010 and has continued pretty pretty steady ever since then um this is not something that that began um in in January uh of 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 uh, 2017 so um you know i think i think there is a the fundamentals are strong um you know the the question is uh, is Trump dragging down what should be a, a, a strong economy that um, that is is spreading um, the the economic benefits um, across the spectrum? And David, I think David, you know, what
1: David, if, David, let me just jump in real quick. I mean, we're talking about I mean, just today the, the stock market closed after four days of perpetual three and high two-digit uh, 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 upgrades. You know, Dow Dow closed up today 143 points, closed up 123 yesterday, and in the 90s on on, on Friday, at some point, are, are we literally that drunk that we cannot see the cliff in front
3: of us?
4: Well, look, I mean, my view is it's not the growth in the stock market that's the problem. It's... The fact that um, we are consolidating that benefit in the smallest number of people possible right i mean what 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 big economic deliverables have we seen from this administration it's been a 1.6 trillion dollar redistribution of wealth to corporations uh, at, at the expense of future taxpayers uh and, and we've we've seen efforts to to cut uh obamacare uh and, and to scale it back um and now we're seeing efforts to uh to to stick it to china stick it to our allies um you know for the benefit of 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 TV ratings and, and to look tough, uh, but really where the burden is going to fall on um, the, the lower and middle class. Uh, and so I, I don't think it's it's necessarily the fact that we've got a, a, a strong fundamental economy from, you know, mostly from the policies that were put in place early in the Obama years. Uh, I think it's the question is if we keep driving a wedge between those benefiting and those not. Um, you know that that's going to that's going to drag us down and, and certainly drag us down as a country uh, in the long term.
1: But but I guess the question I want to ask you is, you know, the start since the official start of the trade war with China and even arguably with Europe, yep. stocks have rallied. Sure. Is I mean I mean is there a possibility Donald Trump might be right on this?
4: Well, uh, you know, stranger things have happened. But uh, I mean, look, you know, these are not these are not issues that we need to speculate about. I mean, there are are hundreds of years of of experience that we can look to, um, and trade wars don't end well for anybody. Nobody benefits at the end of the day. It is not a zero-sum game like the New York real estate market. Uh, You know, we 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 will we will end up suffering just as our, our allies and the targets. Of these tariffs will end up suffering, um, and, and I, you know, look. I, I stocks have rallied, but but at some point, this is obviously, you know, it is going to slow our growth. Um, but the people it's going to affect first are not those invested on Wall Street. It's those Fine. who are working at, at plants uh, in Kentucky and Ohio, um, and uh, you know, when when they shut down because they can no longer afford to operate. Yeah.
1: Hey, uh, I know you. You you've got to get going, David. I appreciate. It. As I, before I let you go, David, um, are you going to buy a Elon Musk mini submarine? <laughs> uh, I,
4: I, it depends how much they are. If uh, you know, if if I can get one for my uh, for my birthday, that would be great. Uh, but it, it does sound pretty cool. <laughs> that, got to, right. you answer. know, got to uh, got to fuel that that U.S. manufacturing market.
1: Exactly. Exactly. David Morlock. Attorney with Wilkie, partner I should say With Wilkie Farr And former White House economic Security advisor Uh, Always good having you on, we'll have you on again I hope soon
4: Justin thanks very much to you and the team Talk to you soon Thanks a lot
1: Hey uh, we're going to take a quick break here guys And when we come back We are going to talk about in case you don't know Well actually we should be really nervous The president has gotten on Air Force One And has now left the country which means he's going to be talking to foreign leaders, which means we should be concerned. This is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. And we're back live on Blog Talk Radio. This is Backroom Politics, the best political talk show you've never heard of. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, Dan Lipner, Laura Chavez out in the Chicagoland area. And from the Big Apple, it is Sharmila Achari. And of course, our associate producer at an undisclosed location somewhere in the area of Cape Cod is Audrey Howerton. Hey, uh, let's talk about uh, another piece of uh, intrigue that's going on here in Washington. It is what's possibly going to happen with the president's trip overseas. Uh, The president has just departed for a week-long trip that includes a meeting in Brussels with the NATO leadership and the leaders of our NATO ally countries, uh, as well as a trip to London, which includes a very large balloon, courtesy of the Lord Mayor of London. And it also includes a meeting in Helsinki with uh, the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin. Dan Lipner, let me start off with you. Uh, first of all, it almost seems like we're living in a bizarre world where Trump is going over to NATO headquarters and nobody likes us, and then he's going to Helsinki where our biggest confrontational uh, adversary, Russia, seems to be his best friend. Where did we miss this, Dan Lipner? Did we lose Dan Lipner? All right. Sharmu Lochari, I'll go to you.
3: Sorry, Justin, can you repeat the question?
1: I, I said, you know, right now we're living in a bizarro world where we've got um, President Trump going over to NATO, and we're expecting – Confrontation from our closest allies, and then he's also going to Helsinki, where normally our biggest adversary
3: is now his best friend. Where did we miss the mark on this? I mean, I thought this was obvious to everyone during the 2016 campaign. President Trump, then candidate Trump, was not shy about his criticism of the EU and his praise for President Putin when he was still a candidate, so I don't know why anyone is shocked that this is now coming to fruition, right? David uh, David Mortlock said it very well, which is that the president is very skilled at, you know, falsely boiling down complex issues into simple solutions and falsely assigning blame to anyone who seems like a convenient scapegoat. So he's managed to somehow conflate, you know, his antipathy with the EU and with NATO to the U.S.'s large defense costs and saying that, you know, NATO that the NATO allies and our EU partners don't pay their fair share in um, in contributing to joint defense and that the U.S. is shouldering all this burden, which is, you know, being passed on to U.S. taxpayers, right? That's all complete nonsense. And yet people believe it, and yet he's able to get away with this stuff, you know, time and time again. So I don't think it's a surprise that we're in a situation where, you know, Similar to our degrading relationships with Mexico, who's now you know elected an incredibly anti-Trump uh, president, that our relationships with our key allies have degraded because the president has continued to attack them. Right? The president has been in Twitter wars with Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London. Like it's, it's, it's. This shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone.
1: Laura, is, is is this something that we're now? uh playing a very, very dangerous game of excuse the pun, Russian roulette with our national security by being so adversarial to our NATO allies.
2: Uh Russian roulette, very clever. Um yes,
1: I, I think this should actually
2: concern a lot of people, um really pretty much everyone to be perfectly honest. Like even if you look back, uh Donald Tusk, the uh, president of the European Council, pretty much like read the Riot Act. To President Trump About how he needs to take a minute Think about what he's saying Appreciate your allies And that's probably going to do nothing But inflame the situation For Donald Trump It's it's wild Is the only way I can think of it Because it almost seems like Donald Trump isn't aware Of the Changes that he's causing He knows he's causing them But he doesn't understand the gravity of it I guess is a better way to put it Uh, Even the idea that he said, you know, he's going on this trip to meet with NATO, to meet with uh, the U.K., to meet with Russia, and he thinks Putin's going to be the easiest step or the easiest meeting for him. Uh, That should not necessarily be the mindset of the president of the United States. We have, uh, to Sharmila's point, we have uh, relationships with allies that are just crumbling at this point in time, and we are putting what seems like all of our eggs in the basket of the North Koreans Which we know how well that's going And we're putting our eggs In the baskets of Russia Which is not necessarily The smartest move They might also be happy to you know, Give a bit of lip service Similar to what North Korea is doing And not actually follow through So it's a very strange situation Where I don't think anyone Knows
1: how this is going to play out Let me try with? Are you still on with us?
0: I am still on with us, especially since you left me off the last part when we danced over an item, so I'm going to hit that one too.
1: Go so, first of all, first of all, go ahead with your, go ahead with your comments.:
0: <laughs> No, I mean, this one matters, because one of the items that, was, that we just kind of danced right by was the, the, uh, the economic advantages of trade, and this is actually part of uh, the issue that we're talking about with our NATO allies. Yeah, there are all those advantages to trade, which all most of which that we said were absolutely true. But one of those, the assertions that was made that we walked right by was the increased wages. And if you want to talk where the Trump voters are the most aggrieved, the, promise, the promises of increased wages have not been there for 30 years. So... That's one of those items that needs to be paid attention to. We can't just dance right by it, which we did. And that's we what's supposed to make our show a little bit better than others. As far well, as our NATO allies As far well, as our NATO allies, yes, it is also true that they they are contributing. However, the, the, the percentage of their GDP that they're, they're putting in has, has, has been suspect for a while, especially since the end of the Cold War, and uh, that highlighted most extremely when the rest of our NATO allies found it impossible to, to field cruise missiles while we had our little incursion with Libya during the, during the Arab Spring. That was not an untroubling thing for a comparatively easy task for our supposedly very well-armed allies in NATO. So there are issues there that we should not completely ignore. How Trump is choosing to the handle them is completely improper and completely mispaints the issue. But unfortunately, there is some merit to those arguments. But if we ignore the actual arguments the only person making any argument that, that everyone else wants to hear, that's the guy that gets heard. So if we don't take those things seriously, then people are going to turn to somebody who's saying, well, at least he's saying there's something wrong there and he's going to fix it.
1: Okay. So my, my question that comes uh, back, you, back to you, Dan, is uh, when, when we're looking at who is that person, who is that individual? Uh,
0: the Democratic Party, it would be nice if, we, if my party actually had the ability to articulate these things without simply slipping into identity politics or attacking people on their character as opposed to the substance of the issues. Yeah. The Republicans, to their credit, in this is the federalist society, this is the, the, the numerous other groups that have been fighting for years on the right to to fight for their issues, and throwing the characters, the human beings that even remotely got in the way of the substance of what they were fighting for. This is the Tom DeLay, this is the Larry Craig, this is the Trout Watch. As soon as they became a trouble to the cause, they were gone. The Democratic Party doesn't do that. We hold on to the characters, and we hold on to the identity in spite of the issues, and it's kind of losing the issues. And unfortunately, the American public, as we've seen thus far, it's really hard to keep your focus on on the actual substance of the issues for long periods of time. So hence, the character of the messenger matters. And the character of this particular messenger is horrendous. And he has violated every other political rule in the book that would have destroyed every other politician. But it would be nice if the Democratic Party could actually feel a message that was consistent regardless of the
1: messenger.
3: Sharmila? I mean, I do agree with Dan on a lot of those points. I think that, you know, as I said, one of the big failures of the 2016 campaign was a lot of people said, you know, what is the message of this campaign, right? Trump was very succinct about that. It was, you know... Make America great again, make America great again, whatever that means to you. It means you know getting your former economic status back, getting a country that and a community that looks more like you again. It's you know letting you know allowing your religion to take a bigger part of your public life. however you defined that term it it was still very succinct, and you know to Dan's point, he pointed out actual issues that we're facing. Americans, such as stagnant wage growth, whereas, you know, the Democrats built a coalition in large part based on identity politics and kind of saying we're going to make this country more open and a more, you know, sort of safe, loving space for everyone without actually addressing a lot of the baseline concerns of average Americans. So I I do agree with I take Dan's point and I agree with a lot of what he's saying. And I do think, as I said before, a lot of, you know, attacking the president for the unusualness or the unorthodoxy of what he's saying is backfiring in the Democrats faces because it's only reinforcing Trump's message that I'm doing things differently and I'm the only one who can do this.
1: Laura, you know, it, it seems to me that the president's really desperate right now for some sort of big foreign policy win. This has been a bad week already for the president, whereas uh, he's going to a hostile environment in Brussels with our NATO uh, allies. Uh, he's going to London uh, in England, which is not necessarily very Trump-friendly right now. And then he's going to uh, he's going to Helsinki solo. Let me start off with the with the the other three hundred pound gorilla in the room is the fact that uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo went to North Korea and was basically snubbed by North Korean leader Kim Jong-un and was – and we were basically kind of walked out of North Korea. Is is, is that that just a sign that, in fact, that the Trump administration and our foreign policy advisors got played by basically a regional thug in North Korea?
2: Um, I think – I mean, to be perfectly honest, yeah, I think it is. And if you look at uh, the past, I mean, every, the past three leaders of North Korea, or two leaders, I suppose, three, including the current one, have had this same type of um, MO. They make a big promise. They break a big promise. They get to kind of then champion themselves on their um, centralized new system, and then they consider it a win. They have a closed society, so they only need to win the home games in order to actually win, whereas the U.S. is, you know, playing the games away and at home, hoping to get a big win anywhere they can. I think I actually had a friend who was on that trip with uh, with uh, Secretary Pompeo, and she said that when they left North Korea, it was going there, it was a plane full of, like, questions and noise, and people were talking, and, you know, people were, and other reporters were, like, starting to kind of, like, Try to like figure out where the outlines of stories could go. You know, like what are the possibilities? This might be a groundbreaking once-in-a-lifetime trip, and then leaving, it was a completely different game. It was a quiet plane. A lot of people were being who were like listening to music or having louder conversations on that plane. We're told like um this, we're told essentially to quiet it down. So even just the tone inside a plane. After being called, I think it was uh, gangster-like or gangsters of the world, um, has
0: yeah.
2: a had a drastic shift, even just in that small little microcosm of people. So I think having this Russia um, Helsinki com, Helsinki meeting is where Trump is really looking to make a win. And one of the th- one of the big reasons I think that's the case is because Trump considers his meeting with Kim a big win because you know. He, they signed that document, there were promises made, and he did it. He sends Pompeo, and all of a sudden snubs and, you know, nothing was done, and we were called gangsters. He thinks if he is doing it, if he is at the helm, if he is talking to Vladimir Putin, that's going to be a win. That's going to be another grand moment
1: for him. Sharma, that's, that's a dangerous, dangerous mentality for any president, let alone this president, I mean, you know, we look at what happened in, in uh, Singapore with Kim, and all of a sudden now we're doing away with joint exercises with South Korea and Japan. We look at what happened with uh, – we look at what the possibility of happening is Donald Trump is meeting with Vladimir Putin one-on-one, no secretary of state, no national security advisor. It is just Putin and Trump.
3: Should that scare us? Absolutely, because Vladimir Putin is a much more skilled psychological manipulator than Kim Jong-un, should. right? You take into what Laura said about the president's already inflated sense of ego, plus his you know, demonstrated uh, what's it called, pandering to flattery, and you have a very rich uh, sort of broth for Putin to work with in terms of being able to manipulate the president of the United States and get a lot of concessions for him from him that i think a lot of you know national security experts on both sides of the aisle will agree are completely inappropriate thankfully we have we have a senate that where the revol- the GOP still remains quite firmly anti-Russia and I think you're going to see that after this meeting, the Senate's going to be a large check on the president's ability to make good on any promises he might make to Putin in that meeting. But
1: it, it, it strikes me, Laura, that when it comes to our foreign policy right now, uh, no disrespect to uh, Secretary of State Pompeo, who I think is very capable, but with the leadership we have, it seems like we're bringing a knife to a gunfight.
2: Absolutely. And even – and. Sharma made some really great points about about, uh, President Trump's ego. Even if you take a look at how he's been talking about these uh, large-scale meetings prior to, if you think back to the way he was talking about his meeting with Kim, he was saying, like, oh, what do you mean how am I preparing? I know this. You know, it's in the bag for the ones with the upcoming one with Putin. He's saying he's been preparing for this his whole life. He's not actually giving any – and I don't know if he – I don't pretend – to know that I am inside the White House and I know what documents he's been given and what background he's been given. But it almost seems like he's taking the approach of, I can wing this. I can go in there and I can, fi- I can read the room as if he's on The Apprentice and just figure out what Vladimir Putin needs and wants and make a, the world a safer place and get myself you know all the accolades. And he's still vying for that um, Nobel Peace Prize. So he thinks that if he can somehow broker a deal that even if it does fall apart he's open to the lines of communication. So yeah, to say we're bringing a knife to a gunfight is 100% an accurate statement because I mean, if you just look at the background that Russia is going through, even even their just general training for hosting the World Cup was insane, was just insane. It was Weeks and weeks of training. We don't seem to be doing that for one meeting with Vladimir Putin, and they were doing that for right. a soccer tournament.
1: Right, right. Sheryl, hey, there seems to be another problem with this with this trip, and, and I think going over there in, quote, unquote, as Laura pointed out, uh, the president winning it, is there's a very delicate and dicey situation going on in London and in England right now. Uh, You just had the Brexit minister and the uh, high-ranking cabinet-level resignation, Forrest Forrest Johnson, the foreign secretary, resigning over the weekend. Theresa May's got a very tenuous position as prime minister. She's now, I'm even hearing rumors out of Whitehall, there could be a no-confidence vote uh, that may pop up. Does Donald Trump going to London hurt or help the current government in Theresa May in Whitehall.
3: I wish I was more up to date on British politics, but I agree with you that um, Theresa May has a, you know, big mess on our hands and it's, it's going to be unclear if Trump says, Trump is quite unpopular in the UK, especially in London. So I don't, and I think, you know, Theresa May has actually towed a pretty, fine and delicate line between you being tough on him when she thinks it's necessary, but being sort of um, amenable enough to him that she, that he hasn't alienated, that she hasn't alienated the UK to the extent of some of the other um, EU allies. But I think that for the far right, you know, sort of hard Brexit crowd, Trump's visit may be a boost to them and give them sort of the, um, the rally that they need to try to oust Theresa May, but I think that, you know, I, I don't know that he'll be making any sort of large speeches about it. I think that so far it seems that he's wanted to stay out of it, and I think that he's going to continue to do so.
1: Well, you know, you know we, we've seen the large nationalistic movement going on in Brexit in England, for example. Uh, we, you know, we saw Italy bring back Silvio Berlusconi after having to push off a... Large socialistic fight in in the Italian elections earlier this year uh, we're seeing it in germany, we're seeing it in Austria, uh, even in parts of France. I, is this a matter of that our our world has become so global that it's a natural evolution that maybe the Trump administration is right? Maybe we should look inside again before we start looking out even further.
2: I think we share this planet with lots of people, and I think that, yes, while it is important to look inside to take take a census of what the U.S. has, I think it's really important to keep in mind that we share this planet with so many other countries, so many other people, and if we start to just become hyper-focused on what's happening within our borders, we're going to be missing a lot. So keeping in mind that having these peace treaties, having these good relationships, having these trade agreements is crucial to the world prospering, not just the United States. And keep in mind, it's, I think uh, David mentioned it earlier, that a rising tide floats all boats, and that is really how a lot of presidents in the past have tried to approach this, have tried to approach foreign relationships, where keeping peace abroad keeps peace at home, Um Having the just the idea that a, a very centralist um, point of view is kind of taking over the planet, if you will, is really scary. This is also how a lot of people, a lot, how a lot of problems escalate to the point of no return, where you get to the point where you realize that you've either alienated so many people that you're now at an economic, a political and a military disadvantage that you're completely dependent on yourself or you can reach out to the other countries and try to figure out exactly how everyone can work together. So the centralist movement is really frightening and I think history has had several of these in the past and, you know, the world has always survived. It's just, it's a different place after it does and there's always going to be that adjustment period if you don't stop it.
1: Uh, Sharma, I mean, is, have we, have we in fact maybe lost the forest through the trees on being so hyper focused on the global? I mean, the bottom line is, have we done irreparable damage to our allies' relationships? Have we, have we in fact possibly trashed the great relationship that we have with London?
3: I think it's too early to say that, right? We have almost 300 years of history. Uh, Finding our countries. And I don't think that, you know, 18 months is is sufficient to rend that. And, you know, recall that President Trump will only be in power for hopefully four, but maybe only eight years. Uh, He can do a lot more damage in that time. But no, I don't think it's the case that that we've permanently damaged. I think that what we have damaged is the U.S.'s moral standing in the world and the U.S.'s credibility as sort of the world's moral authority in terms of talking about, you know, our democratic freedoms and our civil rights and our freedom of speech and our our civil liberties generally. I think when you see that eroding in the U.S. and when you see see the way the U.S. is treating migrants, you see the way the U.S. talks about Syrian refugees, when you see that eroding, then I think that gives a lot of these – Nationalist parties and sort of people who are on the edge of those movements a lot more fuel to say, okay, well, if the U S is turning their backs on these commitments and they're supposed to be the land of opportunity, then we, then we definitely need to close our doors. We, you know, we're not, you know, we're much less powerful in the U S. And if even they're saying that they can't, you know, handle all this influx of, you know, migration patterns, then we certainly can't and we need to close our doors. So I think that that's where you really see the reverberations is that in in convincing kind of the people on the right end of the spectrum and the more nationalist end of the spectrum that this is that this is acceptable and this is the way that, you know, the world needs to be going forward.
1: Okay. Um, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to finish this discussion and also talk about uh, the big win that Alan Moore, our colleague, got in the parachute mm-hmm. pool. Uh, Scott Pruitt? Has left the administration. We'll talk about that when we come back. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. live in Washington, D.C., and parts beyond. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It It is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, Laura Chavez and Sharma Achari. Joining me, as always, is our associate producer, Audrey Howerton. And we're going to talk a little bit real quick about the situation, uh, or continue our discussion about the situation going on with President's trip overseas to meet with not only NATO leaders but to deal with a very delicate situation in London involving the government of Theresa May and a one-on-one meeting with Vladimir Putin. On top of the fact, we're still dealing with the fallout of what appears to be a foreign affairs failure on the situation in North Korea where Secretary of State Pompeo was basically snubbed by North Korean leader Kim Jong Un. Uh, Laura, well, let's let's go back to uh, this this meeting with Vladimir Putin. Uh, he, we know that Vladimir Putin uh, is is trained. He's uh, good at manipulating not only the scene but manipulating those who he's engaging with. Is um, he, is this, and we've also heard the president this week at a rally in Grand Forks and then even talking about, or uh, talking with the press gaggle going out to Marine One to take off for Europe about, you know, hey, you know, he's, he's a good guy. We know what we're doing. I got this. Uh, is there a dangerous sense of arrogance going on this year's and trip with the president, and is that something that we hope, his leadership circle will try and rein in.
2: There is absolutely a danger to the arrogance factor going into this meeting. I mean, there. I mean, even the fact that they're not going in with any specific details of outcomes they really want is should be wildly frightening to people. Usually, when you go into one of these meetings, you at least have a laundry list of like, oh. You know, even with North Korea, it was like denuclearization. That's the guy that we want to really hone in on. That's the talking point. Whereas with this one, it almost seems like you're going to like – it almost seems like the freshman going out to dinner with the senior in high school hoping not to get hit on or not to be taken advantage of. It just – it genuinely feels like you are bringing someone up to the major Ah.
1: Well, I did not think that, Laura, you could turn foreign policy into an awkward 1980s high school movie. That's amazing.
2: Well, a lot of strange things have happened in the last couple of years,
1: so... <laughs> okay, Sharma, the only thing better is if you can make it a John Hughes film from there.
3: Well, I was going to say, Laura managed to turn our geopolitical <laughs> potential crises into a, an exposition on the Me Too movement. But... <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> But I actually, no. part of me, part of me, the weird conspiracy theory part of my brain has wondered if this is all, you know, sort of this talk of not preparing has been just like a a long con by the president to try to, you know, lower expectations of his visit and get his, you know, to lull his opponents into a false sense of security to think that he's some, you know, rube who hasn't prepared and then he's going to wow them at the at the end. Um, because I, I do think that. If he was truly unprepared, there'd be so many leaks about it this you know this administration leaks more than a sinking ship so in, so, in, 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 a, in a macro sense yes, you know, as I stated before, I, I think that his sort of arrogance and you know extreme extremely unwarranted confidence in his own abilities is something that we should certainly be concerned about, but i you know again, I have some confidence that his advisors wouldn't let him fly completely blind in this, in this situation and that he wouldn't want to either.
1: It, but uh, certainly uh, is,
3: is the North Korean situation,
1: I mean, have we lost credibility in the world community and have we lost all respect for North Korean and Pyongyang? Can we recover from that?
3: Well, again, I think that, there wasn't a ton of respect in the world community to begin with. I think that, you know, as Laura pointed out, the North Koreans knew exactly what they were doing, and they've been playing the same game with the United States and the Western allies for 60 years, where they, you know, have a grand summit, make big promises, and then break them five minutes later. Because, again, they want to be, they want the adulation and sort of the acknowledgement of being players on the world stage, but they have no intention of changing, of changing their, their means or or their kind of their methods of governing right the entire purpose of the kim family is to make sure the kim dynasty stays in power denuclearization is diametrically opposed to the kim dynasty staying in power and so i think that was always an unrealistic goal and anyone who studied north korea for over five minutes could have told the president that
1: (laughs) Uh, laura you agree
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. I I feel as though that was that was very well put. Thank you, Sharmila. Um, and I mean, if you even look at the deal with North Korea, you knew that you knew walking away from that table, they just wanted the optics. I mean, they're from a totally outsider's perspective. If you look at the picture of or just that moment where Kim is sitting at the same Table as the president, and it's just it's even an equal number of North Korean flags to American flags in the background. It is 100%. That moment that solidified, you know, this dynasty that they've been, you know, dictating the the dictatorship that they've been wielding over their people. They've essentially said, like, no, you know what? We've been insulted for decades by this country, that country, this world, that leader, but now we're demanding a seat at the table. President Trump gave them that and he gave it to them in as a producer would. And to be perfectly honest, like I'm a person who has definitely like set up stages, I've done set work, I've I've done worn many hats, and even just picking an interview location, you wanna make sure it's a beautiful location where there's color and depth and texture, and you know exactly where the eye is going to go. And whoever set that moment up did a great job. The table so, Lord, was beautiful. What
1: so what you're telling it us, Laura, is we definitely got play.
2: Oh, it was produced to a T. It was beautiful,
0: yeah. <laughs>
1: well, obviously we're going to keep an eye on this one. But real quickly, before we leave this topic, to both of you, which is, the, which is the bigger danger to our national security, pissing off NATO or snuggling up one-on-one to Putin, Sharmila?
3: Putin, at 100%. There are, too many, there are too many economic and national security interdependencies with the NATO countries for our relationships to get frayed too badly. Vladimir Putin is an active threat to our democracy and our society at large. That is 100% the larger threat.
2: She is correct. I have to agree. There is, within NATO, there are a certain amount of checks and balances. There are, you know, layers and layers upon opinions, upon theories, upon, you know, laws and rules. But Russia is the Wild West at this point in time, and there's only one sheriff in town.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough. Hey, uh, we're going we're going to depart from the President's European trip. Obviously, we're going to be keeping a big eye on this. Uh, If you want to follow the developments of that or any of the political events going on, you can always subscribe to our daily political roundup that is From the Cutting Room Floor, produced by Audrey Howerton, our associate producer, every day, about 5 o'clock, but gives you all the updates on all the big political happenings inside and outside of D.C. So definitely subscribe to From the Cutting Room Floor at backroompolitics.org. We're going to take a departure from that. We're going to talk about the big win for uh, our colleague Alan Moore. In fact, we might as well start it off with the parachute pool. Audrey Harrington, are you with us? Audrey. I am. <laughs> Audrey. Okay. Well, we might as well get this knocked out early. So, this is the part of the this is the part of the conversation where we bring up the parachute pool to see who, high, which high-ranking official will depart the administration. Uh, Audrey, I think you have some news for us.
2: Yes. So much news to Alan. Last Thursday, Scott Pruitt resigned as the advisor of the EPA. Now, Alan had had Scott Pruitt in our parachute pool for five or six weeks running, but unfortunately he did not have him
1: last week. But nobody ah, did. So I think what? we do credit Alan. What? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Did he have it the week before? Uh, I don't think so. Because he yeah, was the last one. had given up did... hope there. Oh, wow. Who had Scott Pruitt?
2: Nobody had Scott Pruitt. Alan was
1: the last one. Oh, come one. on no. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to give it to Alan anyway. I think so... we can give it to Alan. <laughs> yeah, I think we can give it to Alan. Okay. Let's talk about this. Uh, after. Pretty much an entire uh, length of service of uh, investigations and innuendo of misappropriation of staff and funds and all kinds of weird investigations totaling now the number fourteen. Uh, EPA uh, EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt last Thursday resigned as the administrator and resigned from the cabinet of the Trump administration. Uh, this uh, unexpected no, but long overdue. Laura Chavez, did this thing go on much longer than it should have?
2: Oh, absolutely. This went on what felt like hundreds of years too long. <laughs> Each allegation from him claiming a $50 a night Airbnb-type situation to even, like, trying to get his wife a -A Chick-fil-A franchise. Like, every step of the way, this guy should have really been... He should never have been considered. He sued the EPA how many times? You should never be put in charge of an organization that you immediately want to dismantle. That goes against being in charge of that. It's like if you hire a babysitter, and the babysitter only, like, kills children it, it's insane that he was even put in a position. he should have been out years and years ago i got i've got grown old through this through his tenure as secretary of the epa uh
1: is, is, how did scott pruitt last this long i guess is the question
3: I think he had a couple of things going for him. Number one was a close personal rapport with the president of the United States, which we've seen is really the key to surviving. Look, Tom Price got kicked out after a month for doing way less than Scott Pruitt. And part of that reason was because Tom Price and the president just didn't really get along. But the president really liked Scott Pruitt, and he, and he saw him as a potential replacement for Jeff Sessions, which when you think about the fact that, a replacement for Attorney General would need to be confirmed by the Senate is a completely insane idea. Like, just as insane as hiring a child murderer to be a babysitter. But, like, but somehow the president really thought that I think Pruitt was a feasible alternative to Jeff Sessions when the time came to give Jeff Sessions the sack. So I think that's what was, <laughs> that's what was uh, holding in place for a long time, I think. But the final nail in the coffin, or the... I think, although I, I do think that Scott Pruitt died kind of a death by a thousand cuts because it wasn't till the later stages of the game when just more scandals kept leaking out. The first couple, the president could say fake news, witch hunt, but just as, as more and more examples of his behavior came out and the fact that Scott Pruitt didn't stop engaging these behaviors when he was called out on them, right? He continued to, you know, misuse his staff for personal errands. He continued to try to get jobs for his wife and his kids. He just continued this shady behavior. And I think once, you know, sort of establishment and even more far-right Republicans like Laura Ingram were like, this guy's a distraction and he has to go, that's when the president, I think, just conceded the point. So I don't think that it was he so much fell out of favor of the president as that he just kept doing it to himself. Dan, so extent, up. Uh, Dan you, have Leonard, to
0: you have to admire the You have to admire the chutzbah <laughs> of Scott Bruitt for keeping not only for staying there, but to keep up the shenanigans. I mean, you gotta respect that. That is truly <laughs> impressive. <There laughs> that was is a no, commitment there, to hustling. There was, no there was there was no there was no backpedaling, no humility. That was amazing and to keep it up as long as he did. I mean, that there should be a plaque with his name on it somewhere in Washington to honor what he has achieved. <laughs> Politicians should look in envy at what Little. Scott Pruitt has done for as long as he did it.
3: The did, swampy, did just, that's did, the did, word can be did, called. Yeah, did, <laughs> Denver, did,
1: you just, did you just, like, take all that pent-up frustration of not being on the air for 20 minutes and just let loose right now? No, I mean, in all seriousness, can you
0: name any politician that would approach scandals the way Scott Pruitt did? Not only getting called out, but keeping it going while he's getting caught. That is amazing. Go. That is absolutely amazing.
1: The Dan, Linder, let me go back. Yeah, let, let me let me go back to you on another, on another angle on this, though. Did Scott Pruitt serve the president's uh, – I mean, did did he do what the president wanted to do in the short time he was the administrator?
0: He did what the president wanted to do. Unfortunately, he attracted more attention than than anyone would want for the things that he was doing. Because he did it in such a ham-handed way and his own personal scandals, some of these rollbacks of environmental protections could have occurred very quickly. Quietly, with only the notice of the of the environmental community, because Scott Pruitt was a terrible messenger with a, with a remarkably selfish sense, uh, he, he attracted more attention. So, while I'm sure that this president doesn't necessarily see that additional harm to the people that supposedly was trying to protect uh, with his environmental rollback, uh, there's going to be a long term. There's going to be long term that's going to be dealt with by everyone that
1: followed. Charlotte, you agree? I mean I mean it seems like Scott Pruitt was, you know, the the uh hand grenade with the pole pin that Donald Trump just threw into the environmental regulatory committee and he got he got what he wanted out of him.
3: Yeah, I think Dan was absolutely right that the president really, you know, stepped in it because now, as he said, the EPA is going to attract a lot more scrutiny than it normally does, right? Because it's even though Pruitt's gone, there's still the association, there's still now kind of the knowledge on the progressive base that this can be an issue that's used to motivate voters in the midterms to say, look, you know, even though Pruitt's gone, he's, you know, there're still villains there doing these dastardly deeds and, you know, degrading our environmental protections. So, Laura, yeah, Laura, I, I think the president did shoot himself in the foot with, with kind of the Pruitt nomination and then, you know, allowing Pruitt to stay in his post as long as possible.
1: Yeah, but, Laura, I mean, how do how the Democrats use this as part of the non-existing campaign that they've got going for midterms right now? They don't have a message. If they're going to use Scott Pruitt, it's not showing. And second of all, you're talking about an electorate, a centrist electorate, that only cares about one thing and that's the money in my pocket and job security.
2: And I think that's uh, an uphill battle that the Democrats have been fighting for quite some time now, actually. Uh, they are so scattered in their message. They can't come together in one space, in one topic, in one issue, in one anything. If you look back uh, to the 2016 election with Trump, he had MAGA. As uh, Sharmila so eloquently put, um, you know, that. Make America Great Again could be customized to whatever you thought um, that would be, whether it was uh, more money, uh, fewer immigrants, you know, you could customize that. And that's actually a page out of the 2008 Obama book where he was like, hope. Hope was his main thing. You know, hope and change. That could mean whatever you needed it to be. The Democrats need to hone in on anything. And if it's the way Scott Pruitt is, you know, Scott Pruitt was, uh, taking apart the EPA and just you know, taking uh, or destroying national parks or, you know, there was just such a wide breadth of things to point out. Centralizing a message around that idea is going to be a huge challenge, and I think that's part of the reason that Democrats are having such a hard time getting a foothold. It's because of this fire hose of topics that they, a lot of them are against, but they can't all come together and say, hey, we think this let's all gather around this one idea and make, to use the very overused word, make America great again for Democrats.
1: Dan is this, is this a situation where Trump has literally given the Democrats a shopping list of topics that they could go to town on, and they're not doing any shopping?
0: No, that, no, that's that's all incorrect. Uh, you, you you can't conflate a presidential election year with an off year uh, election year. So the shopping list that Donald Trump has created is all helpful, um, and the the issues with the environment. It's worth noting there are green Republicans out there that are are not terribly appreciative uh, of the things that Scott Pruitt was doing and how he was doing it. There are also plenty of Republicans out there and you know, the evangelical base that even spoke out against the, the separation of families for the, for the immigrant families issue. So, in fact, what, what Donald Trump has created is a shopping list that can be tailored for the constituents that you're shopping for. Uh, Republicans who are in those swing districts Uh, And I was just looking at those numbers uh, this past weekend for the Republicans in the suburban districts outside of Philadelphia. They are all terrified because they have to now defend or run away from all of this Donald Trump nonsense. And so every bit of nonsense that came from his administration, they have to figure out how to deal with every bit of nonsense that the president himself has spoken they have to figure out how to deal with. So for an off-year election, the Democrats that are running, as long as they don't needlessly play the game the Republicans want them to to play, and thus far with the field of candidates that we put out there, including a remarkably large number of veterans, and in this this case a large number of female veterans this cycle, uh, it's going to be a very – it's going to be a different – a different thing for the, for Republicans to have to fight. And the president, even for his campaign-style rallies that he's had, the numbers aren't what they used to be. While the camera shots are still nice, uh, the volume of people isn't quite there. And then, of course, you have to do the the other math when the president's talking nonsense of things that he's made promises about that haven't happened. You know, the Mexico building that wall. Ken's not on the show. It's, uh this week but uh as he'd like more than likely point out the well there still ain't no wall and Mexico is not going to be paying for it so at some point somebody is going to have to say the
1: emperor has no clothes right right well i i'll tell you it's it's a uh it's going to be an interesting run up and obviously it's going to be on our radar screen moving into November uh, but I will tell you that uh, around the horn, uh, does 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 Trump appoint a harder conservative anti-regulatory uh, administrator to EPA to basically sweep up or basically take over the role for that Scott Pruitt left? Let me start with you, Sharmila.
3: I'm sorry, Justin, can you repeat the question?
1: Yes. Does Trump appoint somebody more conservative than Scott Pruitt to fill EPA?
3: No, I think he will stick with, I think he's seen that he has success with, you know, sort of a traditional Republican, and I think that's probably who he'll nominate.
1: Laura Chavez?
2: Uh, I agree. I don't think he will this round, but I think he's got probably at least one other EPA secretary in his. Uh, umbrella of an administration for the first term so i think this next one's going to be a nice conservative that everyone can agree on and then if there is another one that's going to be where he goes a little bit farther to the right
1: dan lipner
0: oh i'm rooting for uh what's his name uh don blankenship from west virginia let's 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 give him a, a, a <laughs> <an appeal. laughs> no
1: no no let's not, let's not get crazy dan come on let's not get nuts Anyway, uh well we're coming to the end of another show. Uh I wanna thank obviously uh our usual gang of uh characters, Shaw Machari, Laura Chavez, Dan Lipner, and of course always uh special thank you to our associate producer, Audrey Howerton, at her n- n- undisclosed location. Also wanna give a special shout out and thanks to uh former White House economic security advisor, uh uh, David Mortlock for joining the show today Always good having our friend David Along for the ride And of course you can always follow us on Our, on our Website www.backroompolitics.org You can follow us On our twitter feed At backroompolitics You can follow us on our facebook page www.facebook.com Slash backroompoliticsradio And of course you can always subscribe To uh, Audrey's From the cutting room floor Daily political recap. You can get that through our Wait, website. We're not, we're, we're not taking bets
0: for next next week.
1: we going to do the parachute pool. Oh, you're right, Audrey. Are you on? I am. All right, Audrey. You're right. We did not. Apparently, I I was so just stunned that Alan won with uh, with Pruitt. I forgot that we've got to do this again. Okay, so now. We're back with a clean slate. Who is going to be the next departure? This is our parachute pool segment, which you can find published on our Facebook page, facebook.com/slash Backroom Politics Radio. Uh, Laura Chavez, I'm going to start with you. Who's the next departure?
2: I believe Sarah Huckabee Sanders has probably had about enough of this, so I think she's on her way out.
1: Okay, Dan Lipner.
0: Sarah Huckabee is always my choice, uh, I don't, but uh, it seems unscoding for two of us to have the same
1: choice. No, uh, oh, I have to do, do it. it. Nope.
2: Uh, Damn, like someone else.
1: Uh, come back to me. Let, give me a second. All right. Uh, I will go with you, Sharma
3: John Kelly. Damn it, you took mine. Ah!
1: All right, so Dan, back to you. Uh, I'll go with Ivanka. <laughs> wow, you just pulled that one out of your rear end, dude. Actually, you know what? You you sh- like what you should have what you should have gone with. And this is where uh, Laura and I are a tag team. I think who's going to leave next? The deputy comes. Uh, the deputy press secretary, Raj Shaw. I think he's done. Mm. Raj is out. Uh-huh. See, see you got you got to think outside the box here, yeah, kids. Anyway, Nelson, I hope that, I
3: hope you're not trading on insider information we on Wall Street. I, 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 that. No,
1: no, no. That would be immoral. That would be that would be like having, you know, somebody that would be like, you know, having somebody come on the radio show and then having them meet somebody from the radio show. That would be completely inappropriate. Anyway, mm-hmm. that being the case, Uh, Again, you can follow us on our website and our Twitter feed and our Facebook page. And as always, uh, you can download us on Google Podcasts, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, and several of the other platforms that you get your favorite podcasts on. And we'll be back next Tuesday live with the best political talk show you've never heard of, Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. Have a great week, America. Bye-bye. Backroom Politics.